and welcome to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Dr. Mary Sarah Builder, Founders Professor of Law at Boston College Law School. The two discuss her latest research regarding Eliza Harriet Barons O'Connor, who played a pivotal role in the Constitutional Convention. Please follow the Washington Library on all social media platforms and subscribe to the podcast. And now, Dr. Butterfield's conversation with Dr. Builder. I'm sitting here with Mary Sarah Builder, who comes to us from the Boston College Law School. And I want to uh, have an opportunity to, to have her tell us about a story that she's discovered and is exploring with us over the course of three lectures here at Mount Vernon, uh, the story of Eliza Harriet, or Eliza Harriet O'Connor, whom George Washington saw give a lecture uh, at the same time he was attending the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention. Mary, I wonder if you could just tell us uh, right off, how did you find the story and what have you been able to discover about this woman? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I, um, I, well, I wrote a book on Madison and on his notes of the Constitutional Convention, and so I spent a lot of time with the Constitutional Convention, and I teach a seminar on the Constitutional Convention, and one of the things that began to interest me about that was sort of there were no women. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm obviously a woman, and <laughs> kind of weird to never talk about women, and this little thing kept nagging at me, which is I remembered from Charles Warren's great history of the Constitution, no convention, that there was this woman who gave a lecture. And it's, and it's just sort of mentioned, and then he talks about it. And I, at one point, I was like, well, I wonder who that was. Hmm. And so I went back and started investigating who that woman was. Um, and all of a sudden, her whole life came alive. And she became not just a little random one note, but a way to really think hard about what the relationship between women and the Constitution really was. Wow. So let's, let's get that moment. So George Washington is in Philadelphia. Uh, there's a lecture advertised in the newspaper? Yeah, what, he, how does this happen? he comes to Philadelphia early. Everyone's going to um, Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, and Washington uh, gets there a little bit early, and he moves in with Robert Morris and uh, his white Mar- wife, Mary White Morris. And they have a big house, so that's where they're going to put Washington. And he spends a lot of tea- time you know, getting to know people, having tea with people, and one night he goes... Um, to this lecture with Mary White Morris and her ladies' friends. And we know this because he kept a diary. Hmm. Um, and you can, so you can tell he went to the lecture with Mary White Morris uh, and her friends. And then we can see from newspapers, we see advertisements for the lecture. And so um, the lecture was in mid-May, and but beginning in April and May, this Lady, that's how she advertised herself, had been running advertisements for lectures that she was giving. Hmm. And I think she basically ended up giving six lectures. But you can track her. And What were they about? So her lectures, well, let me backtrack. Her name was Eliza sure. uh, Harriet Barons O'Connor. Um, she was born in 1749. She'd been actually born in Lisbon in Portugal. Um, her family were sort of um, merchant Admiral people. Her uh, two of her uncles were governors of New York and New Jersey. So she was she was familiar. She probably lived in the United States in the American colonies as a little girl for a little while, and um, and she she first moves to New York with her husband, um, who's Irish. Uh, in 1786, and then in 1787 moves to Philadelphia. And they moved to Philadelphia 
um, for his business interests, he was going to help out run a magazine. And she advertises these lectures probably as an effort to create a school, which is what she'd been doing in New York. A school for for girls. For girls. Yeah. yeah, for young women. Uh-huh. And so she really fits beautifully into a moment when on both sides of the Atlantic and also in France, all of a sudden, everyone thinks women should be educated. I mean, not everybody, but among um, uh, people with money and what we would think of as sort of upper middle class gentry, all of a sudden, female education is the rage. And wow. she's part of that movement. And what, what does she want young women to learn? Well, she's, what's interesting is she wants um, young women to learn a lot of what young men are learning. Mm-hmm. And in particular, she's very interested in people learning um, elocution or the art of reading. And for us, that might sound kind of boring, like who cares? But um, at the time, there's a whole movement that if people could learn to read and to speak, sort of all of politics would be reimagined. And it's a sort of um, liberal reformist enlightenment tradition. And she's, she's saying that that should also be something that women learn. Wow. So she she is giving a lecture in, in Philadelphia. You said April. Yeah, yeah. It, well, she starts in April, and and Washington goes to see her in May. In May, uh, I, I have to ask you. You may not know the answer to this, but when someone like George Washington, who's of course already as the most famous man in America, did. did does the show stop when he enters the room? What, what do you, what yeah, do you know a, about that? It's a great question. So um, she obviously thought he was coming or people assumed he was coming because she postpones her lecture. So uh, the weather was bad, but she goes ahead anyway, finally. Um, and so you have a sense that they thought they could get Washington there. Mm. And so there was, you know, Washington should be there. And, um, and, he, and he goes, and then the, because he's there, her lecture is reported in newspapers across the United States. Um, that Washington went to see a lady lecture. So what's wow. important is she didn't, it's just not her giving her lecture. She gives this lecture, but then the reports of her lecture show up in all sorts of um, accounts of her lecture across the United States because of Washington. So he's part of the fact that everybody hears about her wow. um, her lecturing. And she even um, seems to have changed the ending of poems to um, say Washington's name instead of the sort of Roman name that was there. So wow. obvious, it, it seems plausible that she knew he was going to be in the audience. Wow. So you you described this moment where uh, people uh, on both sides of the Atlantic are thinking differently about women's education. You did mention something though, though uh, briefly, that not everyone felt this way. Um, what's the what, what is the the counter argument to the education of women is it simply that they that they shouldn't learn that they can't learn? Tell me about the the, the perceptions of women's uh, ability to learn and, and to be well educated. Yeah, and most of the Western philosophical tradition to this point had had sort of presumed women's incapacity. Um, it was built on a notion of um, women's inferior inferiority, and um, and at this moment people begin to to think. Well, maybe women can get some education, but a lot of people assume that what women should get out of education is to be limited to things that would help them be better wives or daughters or mm-hmm. in the domestic realm. And you see this in 
um, famous people like Rousseau, who's really thinking great thoughts about how more and more people ought to be educated. And yet when he gets to women, he thinks like, well, yeah, but they still have to be wives and daughters. And so in Philadelphia, um, after Eliza Harriet gives her lecture and she actually starts to suggest that there be a school run by a woman who's going to keep giving lectures, um, a very famous person in Philadelphia, Benjamin Rush, who we tend to think of as a kind of enlightened, liberal, anti-slavery, reformer type. Um, he gives a speech and then a pamphlet about how he too agrees with women being educated, but they should be educated by men and for domestic purposes. That is to be better wives and better daughters. And that's mm -hmm. a different um, idea than what Eliza Harriet and the tradition she really represents believed. So this 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 uh, um, segues well into something else I've been curious about. You mentioned that she came followed her husband uh, to Philadelphia, who had a, a, a editorial publishing gig lined up. Uh, tell me about her her personal life, her her, her married life. Uh, what what sort of what things have you been able to learn about that? Yes, yeah, she um, she married in 1776 in June, just before the American Revolution uh, in London, and she marries um, uh, an Irish man named John O'Connor, and he's a, studying in London to be a lawyer at the Inns of Court, and then goes back to Dublin um, for a while, and then they come over here, and he's really representative of all sorts of. Um, Irish and English immigrants to the United States who are um, well-educated and sort of imagine they're going to land here and they're going to make um, riches by publishing and writing and, you know, it's sort of a new place and they're in land speculation. And he's part of that. He actually um, suggests and, and actually goes to visit George Washington um, because he's going to write a great history of America. Mm. And that never really comes to be. He doesn't have the, the financial connections um, to do it. But, but he's, so he's like the failure version of a whole lot of other people with slightly <laughs> better connections who succeed. For Eliza Harriet, the problem is, is that um, you have a sense always that he has these great ambitions but he has no money. And so Eliza Harriet becomes sort of the constant economic provider for the family. So wow. she's always giving lectures, and these are lectures that people are supposed to pay for, or she's setting up schools, saying the tuition has to be paid in advance. Um, she may have had some money um, left to her by her father that was explicitly to be independent of her husband. Hmm. Um, so, so she's sort of the economic um, provider. Well, he's sort of a romantic, aspirational kind of fellow. Wow! Did did they have children? They they had no children that I know of, and okay. when um, and there's no evidence that she actually has children. And and was he? Uh, do, do we know anything about how people uh, perceive this? What seems to me sort of an imbalanced relationship by 18th century standards, where the woman is paying the bills. Uh, any reaction to that on uh, yeah. others or within the family? Well, um, eventually, uh, people people start to think that he might he he owes a lot of debts. He's got subscribers that he hasn't um, that he hasn't produced for. But nonetheless, he's often uh, he gives at least two pretty famous published uh, orations celebrating Washington. And um, so he's you know he's kind of complicated wow. figure in his own right. He's one of the first people to use the phrase um, "father of his country." To refer yeah, to Washington, yeah. so he's part of that whole um, that whole place. She clearly um, stuck with him, 
but was clearly exasperated by him. <laughs> and actually, eventually, in the early 1790s, she runs advertisements. At that point, they were in Charleston, um, basically saying that because of his pecuniary difficulties, she was going to have to go back into the classroom, but she was hoping that they would work them all out pretty this, soon. This was in print? Yeah, in print, in the newspaper. Wow. <laughs> okay, so um, we have, uh, you already mentioned Benjamin Rush, who was a prominent figure in, in his time, and certainly uh, prominent among uh, historians looking backward. Uh, so he's a signer of the Declaration, right? I mean, he's, he's a, am I right? I think he's a signer of the Declaration. We can edit that out if he's not. Um, and actually, we'll, I think we'll edit all of this out, Anthony. Um, uh, but we have a lot of conversations about women's education uh, and uh, People that are that are advocating for it, people that have an attitude uh, towards it that seems a little more conservative and a little more uh, supporting um, the, um, uh, the the wifely and motherly roles of women. Um, right around this time, uh, there's there's on the other side of the Atlantic a really prominent spokesperson for uh, this kind of question, and that's Mary Wollstonecraft. So, how does the the, the radical what ultimately becomes a, a really radical statement for the rights of women. Uh, how does that fit into the scenario? Did, is Mary Wollstonecraft on, on, on the radar of the people that we're talking about? Yeah, actually, what's so interesting about Mary Wollstonecraft is we tend to think of her as a radical, and um, I think probably a lot of people, if they associate her with anything, it's sort of like, oh, women should have a right to vote or something like that. But Mary Wollstonecraft actually looks remarkably like Eliza Harriet. Um, she tries to start her own school. Uh, in 1787, her first major publication is Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, so mm. she's writing about female education. She then un writes under a pseudonym um, a book called The Female Reader, which is designed to create a set of texts to teach young women elocution and the art of reading. And then in 1792, she writes Vindication of Rights of Women, but it's mostly in her educational texts wrapped now in this rights Rhetoric And that very famous, there's only one sentence in the entire vindication that says women ought to have political rights. And it comes at the end of a paragraph where she first complains that sort of women who have education don't really have any opportunities to make any money, which was both her and Eliza Harriet's problem. So what's so interesting about Mary Wollstonecraft is, is in some ways she's she just is the very famous version of what Eliza Harriet experienced in her own life. Mm -hmm. And for me, what's important about that is the classic story we've told of this period really focuses on someone like Rush and his views about women's education as being mostly for domestic purposes. And, and historians have tended to think of that as the dominant liberal model, um, yeah. something that's sometimes called Republican motherhood. Sure. What's so interesting about putting someone like Eliza Harriet back in the story and connecting her to someone like Mary Wollstonecraft is we can begin to see the way in which maybe there were lots of women who didn't agree with that. And maybe we can begin to re-understand women's education and women's oratory as a position advocating for more political equality. So it's a way of sort of displacing this very dominant story in which um, the liberal position is really about domesticated women. Wow. Um, on, on, of course, I think most of our listeners, when you, when you hear the th sorts of things we're talking about, also think of Abigail Adams and the right. famous re request to her husband to remember the ladies. Um, are there uh, other prominent figures that you've discovered in this period that are that are advocate besides Mary Wollstonecraft and Eliza Harriet? Are there other places this is being echoed? Well, one of the things that's so interesting is once you start to re-understand women's education and women's oratory as 
as just opposite sides of the coin from thinking about women as political participants, you sort of see the whole field completely differently because this is the beginning height of the movement for women's education and women's oratory. What's sad about it is that if you sort of imagine the 1780s and the 1790s as a big expansion in this movement, an expansion that leads to women voting in New Jersey, so women right. vote in New Jersey in the 1790s, um, it all comes to a crashing halt in the 1800s. And so so for me, it's this um, exciting moment where the Constitution is written in a space which imagines, at least in some ways, the possibility of women's political participation. But um, that gets reversed, and it gets reversed in the early 19th century. And why does that happen? Well, it's a really great question and one that a lot of people pub. Um, uh, sort of really puzzle over. What we do know is that um, every new state that enters the Union after 1802 explicitly has a state constitution with the word male. So women are disenfranchised um, in this period. And and it's the same trend that happens to African Americans. African Americans are disenfranchised in this period. So after 1820, all states include white new states coming into the right. Union in terms of suffrage. And a lot of people have different theories about um, about what happens, but it clearly has something to do with the way in which um, white male democracy develops. And so as um, white male democracy expands and property qualifications vanish, basically women and African Americans become explicitly disenfranchised. Wow. In this, uh, I, and I, I, I believe I'm, I'm remembering correctly, the a, a gender-specific reference in the U.S. Constitution doesn't appear until the 15th Amendment. Is that right? Right. And and actually, um, that summer, while Eliza Harriet is lecturing, and I basically think maybe she had something to do with it, um, there were gender references in the Constitution in drafts of the Constitution, and those gender references were removed. So the Constitution wow. ends up with no gender reference in terms of how they would have understood it at the time. There is the word he, but it's linked to person, and so at the time those would have been understood as gender neutral. Wow, wow. So this radical uh, possibility of, of the 1780s, 1790s gets scaled back quite early in the 19th century, but we have this amazing episode of Eliza Harriet. Let's bring, come back to George Washington. It sounds like both Eliza Harriet and her husband were, were uh, I don't want to say obsessed, but very interested and very, very uh, felt very passionately about uh, George Washington. What were his attitudes like uh, towards women, and uh, do we see them changing over time? Did we learn anything about uh, George Washington out of this story? Yeah, one of the things that's been really great about being here at Mount Vernon um, is that Eliza Harriet and her husband, but particularly Eliza Harriet, came to Mount Vernon to visit Washington. Wow, when was that? And so, um, when she, did they come? She started a school in Alexandria mm -hmm. um, and uh, tr tried to get Washington to sit officially on the board, but he said he was too busy. But he <laughs> he uh, he said he'd sort of, you know, help where he could. Um, he had um, himself begun to ex expand his ideas um, on women's education, and so he uh, was the patron of a school in Alexandria okay. um, for, for children who couldn't really afford um, an elite education. And uh, there's a wonderful letter written, I think in 1786, where he says um, he's willing to allow um, girls to be educated, but at a ratio of one girl to every four boys. Okay. So, you know, he, he maybe wasn't totally expansive. He did work to have his um, 
uh, step-granddaughter and niece educated mm. uh, at a school that looks very much like the kind Eliza Harriet uh, was running. Really? So, um, yeah, you know, so he's 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 no um, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft follower, but um, but he he was remarkably, I think, in in a lot of ways, enlightened for his period. And in fact, in his diary, um, he records how he felt about Eliza Harriet. And what does he, say? Uh, he said he thought the lecture was tolerable. And um, Is that and I think that's praise. I, I always joke um, that that's what um, Mr. Darcy says about Eliza Bennett. And so it's perhaps a, a not bad thing at all. Wow. Um, so in, in all of this, we, we, we have a great window into the past, but I do want to kind of uh, finish the story. We finished the story uh, for the future of, of women's rights uh, up into the early 19th century anyway. Uh, but what happens to Eliza Harriet? Yeah, well, what's sort of sad about Eliza Harriet's story is that I think she um, demonstrates how difficult it was for women in this period uh, who were ambitious in some ways and um, sought, to, sought to live life according to some, you know, sort of aspirational intellectual pursuit. Uh, she continues to um, be forced from one town to another, probably because of her husband's debts. Um, they end up in Columbia, South Carolina, where she's running a very small school. Um, she dies in 1811. Um, and at that time, her inventory suggests that she has been reduced to living in the room of one person's house. Wow. Um, but nonetheless, she um, she had her books, she had her eyeglasses, and uh, she left her money to uh, her executor's young daughters. Um, so a little, a little, even at the end, a little pro-female voice there. Wow. And and we, we we did talk about the 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 future of women's political rights, but uh, in terms of women's education in the early nineteenth century, uh, does anything of Eliza Harriet's vision carry on? Yeah, you know it's it's fascinating. You can actually begin to trace if you look at the history of women like um, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton or the Grimkes or Lucretia Mott, all women who in the 1840s are going to um, advocate at Seneca Falls for women's voting, are going to participate in laws to um, allow married women rights. And you look at their biographies, and many of them were educated at female schools or um, spent some time teaching in female schools. Catherine Beecher goes to, uh, and her sister Harriet Beecher, um, Harriet Beecher still um, very famous, of Uncle Tom's writing, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, are both educated at a school that Sarah Pierce, Pierce starts in 1802 in Litchfield. So you can almost trace sort of generation after generation the way that this early movement towards female education in the 1790s in some way kind of keeps pushing forward the possibility that women will be eventually included back in um, constitutional rights. Wow. And all this came out of one line in Charles Warren's volume on the Constitutional Commission. One, one, one little line that kept bothering me. That's great. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.